thank you again for today. Thank you that we're able to gather. God, I pray that your spirit will um, illuminate your truth in our lives in a way that doesn't just feed our minds, um, but influences our decisions and actions. Um, we want your truth to do this because your word is from you and it's life um, and it's and it guides us and it helps us to know who you are and how you want us to live. God, we're thankful for your spirit um, that empowers and enables us to live the way you've called us to live. Um, we love you. We're thankful for this story. There's so many things to learn. Um, and so as I unearth a few of these um, truths in here, uh, may it feed our souls and may it be a source of life and strength um, for us in Jesus' name. Amen. We live in a world where not much can happen without, be, without it being captured. And this is what I mean by this. Modern technology um, has allowed us, um, has allowed incidents and events to really go by and happen without someone capturing it on their mobile device and sharing it online. We capture all sorts of things. We capture birthdays, engagements, um, daring and dangerous acts. Um, we capture concerts. Yesterday, um, I was at the park with my kids and we were doing those challenges I was telling you about. And um, I, I was trying to organize a challenge and give instruction, but at the same time, I was filming it on my mobile device. We um, capture all sorts of things. and. Because of this, um, some of the things we capture um, are often um, rare um, and unexpected. And I think one of the things that our mobile devices and technology has allowed us to capture is a person's final moments in life, their final moments in life. There are Lots of YouTube videos. If you were to type in, for example, um, you know, videos and images of people's, you know, people's moments, final moments before they died, lots will come up on YouTube and lots will come up on websites. Um, from these photos or videos um, or social media posts, we don't just get evidence of, you know, what they were doing just before they passed away but um, they teach us lessons. We, we have some things to learn about those moments in a person's life. I was um, reading um, the last words from some of the most famous people we know, and some of them said some profound things about life and about death and about everything. And so it's not just evidence for us, but we can learn so much from it. Um, for example, um, from the tragic and disturbing videos of the final moments of Lord George Floyd's life, um, we were made aware of the reality of police brutality and systemic racism in America. That is kind of what triggered the protests and the discussion on racial injustice and everything going on. And so um, we are able to capture all sorts of things. And this includes the final moments of someone's life. 
In a similar way, um, this chapter, Acts chapter 7, um, is um, the final moments of Stephen's life captured um, in written form for us. And there's so much for us to learn from this. Um, it teaches us about who God is. And it also helps us know how he wants us to live. And so with the time we have, um, let's just look at some truths from the final moments of Stephen's life. Okay. And the first thing we learn from this story is this. It's important for us to know the story of God's work. It's important for us to know the story of God's work. Um, after Jesus's resurrection, and ascension, that is his return to heaven, the gospel began to spread like wildfire. And as a result, we've been seeing this throughout our study in Acts, thousands of people joined the Christian community in Jerusalem by becoming followers of Jesus. And as the church grew, um, it was exciting, there was a lot of good things going on, but they also faced challenges. And they didn't only face challenges from the outside, but they faced challenges from within. They drew opposition from Jewish authorities who viewed them as heretical, a heretical threat to their ultra-Orthodox beliefs. And because of this, life became extremely difficult for the early church. They were arrested. Um, some of the key leaders were thrown into jail and severely punished. And so the church encountered, the early church encountered a lot of opposition from the outside, like we've seen. But they also experienced challenges from within. One of the most well-known internal challenges they faced as a church had to do with Greek-speaking widows being overlooked during the daily distribution of essentials. This was a huge threat to the unity and equality in the church. So what did the apostles do? They made it their priority to come up with a solution. And so with the help of the congregation, the solution they came up with was to recruit seven mature and gifted men to provide oversight for this ministry that helped feed and provide essentials for widows. Among the seven was a man named who? Stephen. Stephen was an outstanding individual. He was an exceptional leader. You could say he was one of those guys that was like a leader of leaders. Um, he's described as being full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. And this basically means that he was this charismatic leader who was performing signs and miracles among the people. And this also means that he was a fearless promoter of the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. Stephen, man, like he was an extraordinary man with extraordinary abilities and God was using him greatly. God really was. Like, he was just awesome. Great guy. Although, Stephen, if you was to meet him, you would think, man, he's an awesome guy. He's the type of guy that would probably be asked to do a TED Talk or something like that. He was just exceptional. He was a very likable man. But although he was easy to like, not everyone liked him. He had his fair share of critics, like all talented 
and exceptional people. The religious leaders did not like him at all. At that time, a lot of Jews rejected Jesus as the Messiah. They rejected any belief that Jesus was the Son of God. If you were alive in those days and went around declaring and telling people that Jesus was the Son of God, you would get yourself in a lot of trouble. If you were to do it now, like, you know, you set up a Twitter account and, you know, you went online and started telling people about Jesus and who he was like you know some people will be like oh that's nice that's good for you and those some people will also ignore you <laughs> you know you're not going to get in trouble for that we live in um a society of freedom and freedom of speech and um, we can do that but back then there was no way you could do something like that it would get you in a lot of trouble and so when the religious leaders heard and saw Stephen going from synagogue to synagogue telling people that Jesus is the Messiah, they began to make plans to silence him. Why? Because they viewed him as a heretic. That is, his message that he was going around promoting was against the law that God gave to Moses. And so what they did was they captured Stephen charged him with blasphemy and made him stand trial before the Sanhedrin which is the highest court of justice at the time and that is where we are um, we have arrived in Acts 7 we have arrived in Acts 7 is um, um, a description um, eyewitness account of Stephen's trial before the Sanhedrin during the trial, Stephen was given an opportunity to defend himself. This was customary back in those days, um, right? As someone who's charged with blasphemy, you have an opportunity to um, defend yourself. That's why the high priest says to him in verse 1, if you look at verse 1 again, it says, what does the high priest say? Are these things so? Okay, so the high priest is saying, you have been charged with blasphemy. Are these things true? Now, before we look at Stephen's response, let me just point out something really interesting. And that is this, it, the same high priest who presided over the trial of Jesus is the same high priest who is presiding over the trial of Stephen. His name is Cephas. And um, history tells us that he remained in office four to five years after this trial. Okay. And so how did Stephen respond to the false charges against him? Now, his response is so unexpected. It's not exactly the best way to respond when you're on trial for blasphemy. Stephen doesn't even try to defend himself. He doesn't even directly address the accusations that, um, that have been brought against him. Instead, what he says makes matters worse for him. He delivers a speech where he carefully summarizes the history of Israel and then he concludes his speech with a rebuke. He calls out the religious authorities. 
OMG. <laughs> Crazy. All right. So um, from verse um, from verse two, okay, um, and it, you know it says, and then Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. Um, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Okay, just stop right there. So Stephen, what he does is from verse 2 all the way through to verse 53, uh, no, 50, what he does is um, he starts talking about how God called Abraham and promised he would make him into a great nation a land described as a land flowing with milk and money. And then what he does is he talks about Israel's slavery in Egypt and how God used Moses to deliver them. Stephen, um, in this speech, then speaks a little about Joshua, who led God's people into the promised land. And then he briefly highlights um, David, who found favor in the sight of God, and how David really wanted to build this place of worship for God, and how he didn't, but his son Solomon ended up doing it. And so, um, like I said, from verse 2 all the way to verse 50, Stephen does a great job summarizing the history of Israel. Now, the question is, why would Stephen give a crash course in the history of Israel to an audience of religious leaders who were very familiar with the content. Let me just remind you that Stephen is on trial before um, the highest court of justice and on that panel, members of that council, you have some of the most elite religious leaders and so they know their they know their bible they know the history of israel and so the question is why would why would stephen even give them a crash course when they knew a lot about it anyway the other question is this why did it make matters worse for stephen why did his speech end up costing his life this is why listen to this this is why his brief historical sketch of Israel was in fact a rebuke. In other words, it was less about the mighty acts of God in Israel's history and more about their history of rebellion against God. How so? Firstly, if you study his speech closely, okay, and that's kind of my challenge for you this week, okay, go back to Acts 7 and um, just read it and study it and read it all week just keep reading it if you study it closely you'll notice that his historical sketch of the history of israel emphasized how throughout their history god raised up leaders to deliver his people but the israelites kept rejecting those leaders including Moses and I'm sure as we read it you kind of saw that there's just a lot of God raising up leaders and the people of Israel just saying no nah, we don't want you as a leader and we want to do our own thing the second um the, the second thing um that kind of gets him in trouble is this he pointed out how the Jews 
have been deceived into thinking they were in God's presence as long as they worshipped in the temple. Um, and so back then, there was a huge emphasis on if you want to experience the presence of God, you have to go to the temple. Um, and Stephen comes along and goes, no, no, that is not the case. And he actually quotes an Old Testament prophecy in verse 49 and 50, where it God basically talks about like heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house? Will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? And so God is basically saying that you can't build a house for me because I am everywhere and I own everything anyway. OK, these are the two main things Stephen is trying to highlight with his history lesson. And in case they missed the point he was trying to make, Stephen then turns from a rebuke illustrated by history to a direct rebuke. Look at verses 51, 52, and 53 again. This is what Stephen says. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers is, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced um, beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. In other words, this is what Stephen is saying. He's saying, guys, you are as stubborn as your forefathers. Don't think you're better than them. You are as stubborn as them because you did to Jesus what they did to the prophets. Right. You rebelled against. No, they rebelled against Moses and rejected the prophets. And you, you're worse because you rejected God by betraying and murdering Jesus, the righteous one, Jesus, the Christ. Stephen is on the offensive and he's not trying to win any favors here. OK, <laughs> and he knew that what he what he was saying um, was going to get him in a lot of trouble. Um, Charles Spurgeon, um, the, you know, pastor and preacher from London says this uh, Stephen takes the sharp knife of the word of God and rips up the sins of the people laying upon the inward parts of their hearts and the secrets of their soul and um, St Stephen was able to do so and he was able to do this give a history of um, God and how he worked in and through his people um, Israel and he was able to do that and also apply it to them. Um, he was able to do that because he was very much well versed in scripture. He knew his Bible. Um, another um, um, scholar, F.F. Bruce says, Bruce says, Stephen knows the story of God's work among his people very well. Not only is he able to tell the story, but he is able to punctuate it with numerous key verses that he knows by heart, um, that he knows by heart. Most people think the Bible is a book of rules, of do's and don'ts, but the Bible is actually a story. It's ultimately a story. And it's a story of how God brought about salvation for humanity through his son, Jesus Christ. 
that is the Bible. If you read the Bible from um, Genesis to Revelation, from cover to cover, you will realize that it's this big story um, of how God brings about salvation for humanity through his son, Jesus Christ. And so my question to you is, in light of Stephen and seeing how he was well-versed in scripture, my thing is, do you know the Bible? And when I say that, I don't mean oh, you know a few verses, or if you're awesome, you've managed to memorize huge chunks of scripture that you can recite. I'm not saying that. When I say, do you know your Bible? What I'm saying is, do you know, how well do you know the story of salvation? Could you retell the story of redemption? And it's just so important that we view the Bible in this way, that we don't view it as a collection of do's and don'ts, but we view it um, as a story of how God brought about salvation for humanity through his son, Jesus Christ. That was the first thing. It's important to know the story of the Bible. The second thing we learn from this story is that Jesus still cares. Jesus still cares. Um, Stephen's rebuke made the Jewish leaders very mad indeed. Look at how they respond in verse 54. It says, now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Okay, they respond to Stephen's stinging rebuke by grinding their teeth. What is that? What is that talking about? In our modern times, because when we want to express outrage or something, what we do is we curse, we clench our fists, and we get sarcastic, right? If you want to go down the whole um, route of being um, passive-aggressive, just very sarcastic, okay? Um, but in those days, in that culture, if you were really angry, if you were livid, if you were outraged by someone or something, you would grind your teeth, Okay, it was one of the common ways uh, they expressed extreme anger and outrage. It's crazy. They are absolutely angry, grinding their teeth. You can imagine it. Just imagine Stephen standing there. He's just finished his speech, dropped the mic. And these religious leaders, I don't know how many were there, but they are angry and they are enraged and they are grinding their teeth. That is the scene. This is what's happening. It's a striking scene. But what's even more striking is how Stephen responds to their outrage. As they rage against Stephen, he's not moved by it at all. He isn't fearful. He doesn't try and escape. Instead, look at what he does next. Look at verse 55. But he, that is Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. All right. Stephen is not faced by all by the outrage. Here he is. All right. Just in the midst of a group of men who are angry with him. And it says he's full of the Holy Spirit. He gazes into heaven and he sees the glory of God. All right. Um, he sees 
um, a vision of God in all his glory with Jesus standing by his side. Now, you may have noticed this, but if you haven't, it's all good. Okay, uh, I'll explain it to you. In the Bible, every time Jesus is pictured in heaven, or every time it talks about Jesus being in heaven, he's often um, portrayed as um, as sitting down. Okay, he's sitting down at the right hand of God. If you know your Bible well, he's always sitting down. If you don't know your Bible well, here's some new information for you. You learn something new every day. <laughs> okay, All right. he, he's always sitting. Here, he's standing, which is a very rare posture and position for Jesus who is in heaven. There's been no definite answer from scholars um, as to why Jesus is standing at this point and so we can only speculate but I think it makes sense to conclude that Jesus is standing because he's actively watching involved and responding to the needs of his people from his exalted position at the father's side Okay, let me just give you an example. If you were to be um, a fly on the wall in my living room or something, okay, you were like spying on me and being creepy, <laughs> okay, and I'm sitting in my living room and I am on my laptop and my kids are playing. And by the way, this is what it's been like for us for the last, um, what, two, three months, okay? Our home has become our, um, the school, it's become my office, it's become our everything, okay? So imagine, I'm on my laptop, kids are playing, and then um, Eden, um, who is four years old, Jesse, who's eight years old, um, Eden grabs Jesse and throws him on the floor, jumps on him, hurts him really bad. And Jesse begins to cry and I'm just sitting there and I'm not responding in any way. If you saw that and you were being creepy and spying on me, you would think, what is wrong with him? Has he got ears? Can't he hear? Right. Or, you know, I'll be looking at Jesse. He's hurting on the floor. And I'm just, no, I wouldn't be doing that. As a father, I will stand up and I would even go as far to say if it's serious, I would fling my laptop off of my lap and make my way towards my son. Jesus' posture, the idea that he's standing and not sitting, communicates this. It communicates that he cares. Just as a father takes action when he sees um, his child hurt in any way, um, this is what Jesus is doing. He cares. And that is why he stands. And so what happens next? Stephen, what he does next is he basically shares the vision of what he's seeing. Okay, 57. He says, behold, I see the heavens open and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. He's standing at the right hand of God. And what I want to just say to you guys is this. It's simple. It's but it's profound, and that is Jesus still cares. He still shows compassion towards his people. We all are very familiar with Jesus um, when he was alive. 
okay, when he was on earth, we have the Gospels and we have so many written accounts of Jesus when he actually walked on this earth. He was very compassionate to people um, and he helped people and he healed people. He was very caring. He was very loving. But what is interesting is that right now, because we don't actually see Jesus physically, but we believe he's alive and he's working in us through his spirit. It's challenging for us to still believe that Jesus actually cares. When you're going through a hard time, you will probably one point, one time or another, you will struggle to believe that Jesus actually cares. You you may think, uh, for example, you know he's aware, but the struggle is, does he care? And this is one of those incredible passages in scripture that communicates to us that, man, Jesus is up on his throne, um, but he is not impersonal he is not um, unresponsive but he is moved and concerned and cares when his people when his people um, go through difficult times Jesus cares and through his spirit he is near and the question is do you believe this do you believe that Jesus cares about you or do you believe that he has more important things to think about, okay? And more important things to be concerned about. That, man, your little issue that you have, he doesn't really care. He, he does. He does. He really does. This story doesn't just remind us that God cares. Um, as Christians, it challenges us to love our enemies. To love our enemies. That's the next point. And so after Stephen looked up to heaven and saw a vision of God in all his glory with Jesus standing by his side and shouted out what he saw, um, the Jewish leaders couldn't take it anymore. They were, they were so angry. Look at what they do from verse 57. But they cried out with a loud voice and, st and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, 59. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Let me just remind you that these are um, actual events. These things actually happened. There's a lot going on here. Um, a lot going on here. But did you notice something? And I'm sure you did. Did you notice that Stephen is actually praying for the people who are stoning him to death? And notice this, that he's not praying that God would judge them, but he's praying that God would bless them. He's asking God to show the men that are chucking stones at him. 
He's asking God to have mercy and be gracious and be forgiven. Okay? I don't know about you, but the last thing I would want to ever do if someone was killing me with something is to pray for their welfare. The last thing I want to do when someone hurts me, just hurts me, says something or does something that just annoys me or really irritates me and hurts me really bad. The last thing I want to do is to pray for their good. I don't want to do that. And I'm sure if you're honest with yourself, you don't want to do that. I will pray, but I will pray in precatory prayers. I'll pray for God to severely punish them or something. That is my natural instinct and inclination. Here, Stephen is doing the exact opposite. He's asking God to bless and forgive rather than curse and judge the men who are stoning him to death. David Guzik, who is a Bible teacher up in Santa Barbara, says this. Stephen displayed the same forgiving attitude that Jesus had on the cross. He asked God to forgive his accusers and he made the promises loudly and publicly. And in praying for his killers, this is what Stephen was displaying. He was displaying love for his enemies. The challenge to love our enemies is not limited to Stephen or Christian leaders or Christian all-stars. They don't exist, but we think there is an elite level of Christianity. Um, the, the, the challenge to love our enemies is not limited to those guys. But guess what? The, the challenge and the ability to love your enemies is for all of us. It's to you and to me. God, by his grace and the power of his spirit, enables us to express love for those who have hurt us really badly. He just does. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, 42 to 48. You remember it says, you have heard that it was said, Jesus says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. And he goes on to talk about how he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. But Jesus said it. He, he's given a command and he's saying, hey, disciples of mine, love your neighbor um, it says that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, and Jesus flips it around. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you may be children. That's huge. That's a huge command. And the 
interesting thing about this is Jesus didn't just command us to love our enemies. He didn't just tell us what to do, but he modeled it for us. Jesus actually lived what he said. Jesus loved those who hated him. How did he express his love for them ultimately? By dying on the cross for their sins. And the truth is this. If you're now a follower of Jesus, you used to be his enemy. But through the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus, you are no longer an enemy of God. You are reconciled to him um, and you are now a son um, or daughter. It's just amazing truth. And this realization is what empowers us to love those who hate us. We cannot in and of ourselves um, cultivate or create um, a love for those who hate us or anyone who's hurt us. We cannot do it. Only God can do it. And it begins by us reflecting on what Jesus has done for us. The last thing this story reveals to us is that Christians are still getting killed for their faith in Jesus. Christians are still being killed for their faith in Jesus. When Jesus um, was on earth, he was despised. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was misunderstood. He endured the cross and despised the shame. Jesus was the king of kings. He was God in human flesh, yet he died and was forsaken for our benefit so that we would have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Once Jesus told his disciples this, he says, he said to them, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. John 15, John 15, 20. And guess what? Jesus is absolutely right to this day. All over the world, Christians are being persecuted for their commitment to Jesus. Stephen may have been the first martyr. Okay, Stephen, St. Stephen, he's known as the first martyr for the first Christian um, to be killed for his faith. But he was not the last. Ever since his death for his faith, Countless Christians have been jailed, have been persecuted, have been tortured and have been killed for their faith. The Christian persecution we read about in scripture and in history books is not a thing of the past. OK, it's just not. Um, according to um, a survey done by Open Doors um they uh, they investigated that persecution that um is increasing at, at an alarming rate all over the world um they say that um a staggering 11 christians are killed for their faith every day that means today as we sit in our homes um and we're all connected um, through Zoom, I'm in the UK, you're all in the US um, As we sit here today in our homes By the end of today, 11 Christians 11 
of our brothers and sisters would have been killed because of their allegiance to Jesus Christ. And when we hear these things, when we hear about martyrs and Christians dying for their faith, we're kind of numb to it. We're desensitized to it because we hear it all the time, don't we? But I, I, I've been looking at this recently and I've been looking at Stephen and I'm like, man, he's the first martyr. He's the first one that died for his faith. And ever since then, so many. And to this day, 11 Christians are dying every day for their faith. And that should move us. Um, it should affect us in one way or the other. Facing per opposition is not an experience only for Stephen and Christians in the early church. Okay? Um, there's a pastor. I mean, you know, the, I read a story of a pastor in Central African Republic. Um, it's a country. It's um, it's a country in Africa, kind of northwest Africa. He was a pastor there. He started a church in his neighborhood in that country, and in 2016, he was shot to death um, by um, some terrorists, some rebels outside of his church. His name was John Paul. And his wife, Mary, said that they killed her husband because the community no longer wanted Christians in the area. And I just use that as an illustration of one of many Christians who are dying for their faith. In the New Testament, the word martyr um, has the same meaning as witness. What that means is that martyr, a martyr is a person who witnesses for Christ no matter the cost. People like Stephen and Jean-Paul were determined to remain faithful to God's call and the gospel. And they knew the danger. But what they did was they chose to remain faithful as witnesses of their risen Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. And so my question to you is this, how can you live out the kind of commitment they displayed where you're at now? You see, Stephen lived for Jesus and died for Jesus. He died knowing that his life was lived for Jesus and this should be the goal of everything. If you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a witness. Okay? You are a witness for Jesus Christ. And so my question to you is, how does Stephen's story inspire you to pay any price to obey Christ? Let me say that again. How does Stephen's story and the countless stories of people that have truly lived for Jesus inspire you to pay any price to obey Christ? What specific step can you take now in light of all of this? May you be Jesus's witness. May you be bold and faithful to witness for him no matter the opposition 
you face. And may you remember that Jesus still cares and that for the Christian, we should not fear death. Death has no sting and we should not fear death. And Stephen's story tells us like just before he died, he, he had a vision of Jesus responding to him. It's amazing. It's so amazing. And so let's um, let's pray and we'll get into some singing. God, thank you for this time. Thank you for um, allowing us to see several of these truths um, in your word. Um, we love you. We pray that you would help us be your witnesses no matter what it costs us. In Jesus name. Amen.